This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Julie Ciccolo, VP, Head of Security at Guild Education, an education benefits platform. Julie, thanks for chatting with me today. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Great. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, what's your background, how you ended up where you're at and, you know, where you came from. Sure. So uh, Julie Ciccolo, like I said, I work for Guild Education. We consider ourselves to be sort of a career enablist platform to help people advance their careers in whatever form that may take. I've been in and out of like legal security, governance, risk, and compliance for somewhere between 17 and 20 years. I, I keep meaning to add it up. I haven't recently, but so quite a long time. I uh, have a, a pretty strong background and understanding legal and regulatory issues. Moved into compliance. From there, went on to actually a risk role. And then from there, moved into more of a head of security, where I still actually consider risk to be one of my favorite topics. So really excited for the conversation today. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're super glad to have you. And, you know, it is interesting to me, the folks that come from the policy and, and legal world, that it still can be exciting for folks. I don't know about you as a technical person. That's my least favorite part. So I would imagine it's probably the opposite for you. <laughs> but anyway, so what does your day to day look like? And, you know, for you as a security leader in your organization, how is it different, perhaps, than other places that you've been? Oh, that's a great question. So day to day, I really split my time between the parts of my team. So we do privacy as well. So I handle the privacy group, the cyber risk, our compliance, and then the security operations team. So usually splitting my time between one of those groups that's either escalating or or needing help. The biggest difference between where I'm at today and then where I was even, I would say, four or five years ago is Guild is cloud first. And we're also Lambda first. And so really, really, while we had a modern security practice at my last company, we have really pushed the envelope here. And so continue to look for new ways to support the teams, to support the engineers, and keep up with the speed of development in the world today, which generally means that I'm also spending a bit of my time talking to founders every month just to kind of keep a pulse on what are they seeing? What are they working on? That's one of my favorite parts of the job too, so... Yeah, interesting. So as you are an education platform, what are kind of the risk components there that you find yourself focusing on? Yeah, so we actually don't offer education. Guild helps facilitate the benefit itself. So we help people find the right career path and the right program for them. And then we facilitate payment between our customers and the schools so the students are never out of pocket. So luckily, I don't have some of the same requirements that you would see from like a higher education risk point of view, but we do maintain a lot of personal information and then the payment process itself. And so that's mainly where we're focusing from a risk standpoint. The basics that you would see like SOC SOC 1 and 2 plus focusing on aligning the program with the cybersecurity framework. Okay. So it sounds like all you need is some healthcare data in there and you'd have the trifecta. (laughs) I will. I will. uh, No. (laughs) I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) So in your opinion, what do most security practitioners get wrong about cyber risk management? I think the thing that a lot of practitioners get wrong is they assume or they feel the pressure to own the risk themselves. And so what I would say from my my philosophy and and what 
my standpoint is that really my job is to be an advisor on the risk to the business. And so I should be able to explain to a business owner or or somebody within the business, like your CFO or even head of engineering, like what risks are at stake and then aligning that to the business risk appetite. And I think the problem is a lot of security practitioners assume they own accepting that risk. And that's where I see a lot of downfall. If you're owning that risk, you're taking on that risk as well for yourself and you're really not helping the business make the best decisions. Yeah, that's a huge one. I see that all the time. For lack of a better term, I could call it the champion syndrome or something like that, where they believe in another piece of that that I see all the time is that those same people typically, as a result of that, what I would call psychological burden of owning that risk, is they end up being completely risk averse. And they believe that zero risk is the only, you know, acceptable path. And they forget that business is risky and and with risk comes success and reward. But oftentimes it's too frightening of a topic. So I'm glad to hear that that that's your approach. I think as more people start to adopt this, as you uh, convince more people of this, I think they probably find some peace of mind in knowing that, you know, I actually shared this problem with multiple people, multiple stakeholders. I got input from all these people and we have decided this. And at the end of the day, you know, we is always a, a better feeling than just, well, me, I thought of it alone. So hopefully that catches on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think a big barrier in the psychological problem is assuming you're responsible at the end of the day for that decision that was made. And to your point, businesses do have to take on risk. I, I mean, I work at a late stage startup. At you know early stages, you're accepting a lot more risk than you do in later stages. But certainly understanding your business's risk appetite and understanding how much risk they're willing to take will really help you. It can also help you make better decisions for your program. For example, I mentioned speaking to founders. I am open to using products that are just out of stealth or beta. And I'm able to do that because I understand Guild's stance on risk and and how we think about innovation. And so I'm able to make some decisions about using newer products that some other leaders, I think, are unwilling or scared to do because they're assuming all of that decision is on them and that if they move to a new technology, there can be risk there, but it's a shared responsibility within the business. So I think it opens up a lot of doors if you're willing to take that step. Sure. So on that point, how difficult do you find it to approach, for example, founders and asking them the right questions so that you walk away with an understanding of what is the risk appetite of the organization? How do you find that to be? And do you have any tips for folks for approaching that? Sure. I will tell you, most founders would love to talk to you. (laughs) I don't find that I have to find them. They will come to me many times. But one of the things I would say, if you're looking to have those conversations, if you're at a conference walking the floor, the vendor hall, don't go to the middle, go to the outside. Your founders, if you're really at a a startup company, you're not spending money to be in that center area of the conference, you're going to be on the outside. And then really talking to them about what problem are they trying to solve? And does that even align with the problems you have at your own company? The other nice part is that they're able to tell you what they're seeing across the industry. And so they're saying, oh, I can see this other company. We started this company because we saw these problems out here. And it might be an area you didn't even know existed that you probably want to start looking into. So my advice is actually to just reach out to any of them that you might see at a security conference or podcasts like this. I know you're probably interviewing founders sometimes or other methods like that. The other one is LinkedIn. There's a lot of times you can find founders looking to talk to people, especially heads of security. 
well, it might feel like a bit of a burden on your part to, to give them advice on their product, you're getting something back from them and that they're giving you some insight into what they're seeing. And they're usually looking forward. They're not looking back. Okay. So communication being a, a critical yes. skill then. What other skills do you think are most critical for practitioners? And in particular, like looking forward, what skills do you think will become important that aren't yet? The one for sure, my team, oh, we automate everything. So learning a language, a coding language, uh, we're Python. So uh, it's a requirement if you're on my security operations team that you know Python. And that is to not only help with automation, but it's helping as we're you know building out the security practice with the engineers. There's a lot of times when we're needing to script things out. The other thing I would say is taking free courses. There's a lot of free courses out there. It's like AWS has a lot of certifications you can do for free to understand some of the new technology, especially when you start looking at where you want to be in the future, understanding like the technology that's coming up and coming and starting to take some of the free courses around those. The other one that is really exciting for me that we're starting to see is an intersection between data privacy, data operations, and security. I think it's an emerging practice that will definitely be powerful in the next probably two to five years, maybe sooner, depending on how fast it catches on. I think it's the next DevSecOps. I'm not going to name it. I don't I don't have a <laughs> catchy name for it. But it is definitely, as we're what we're starting to see is that as data is able to move, and it's moving very quickly across many SaaS products or even within like your cloud environment, in understanding the security around where that data is living, along with the teams that you need to work with, which in this case is data operations. So you're able to get like starting to understand the impact of a data type in an environment like an S3 bucket. And so if you're able to see like, okay, this S3 bucket has a certain vulnerability, you understand the impact from the privacy standpoint, and then you already have a method for working directly with your data operations team. I think that's definitely an emerging practice that we're going to see expand greatly and that although I say I pointed to DevSecOps which I feel like is still being talked as as if it's new but I think this new one will will probably take the same path interesting so in communication of this stuff so like um, you know when you're describing technical risk components like the S3 bucket example for example and a specific data type you know found in that how hard is it, do you find, to articulate that stuff to the rest of the business? So like, because obviously not everybody's going to be technically oriented, but do you think that there's going to be a skill needed for people to remember how to describe things in non-ultra-technical? So I guess what's that, the project manager role today? Yeah, I'm actually exploring what this person, like we're going to hire somebody to do this role. And I do believe that that's why I pointed to the DevSecOps. I think it is somebody who who can speak to the data operations team, but also be able to talk to the privacy team. I think it's probably pretty specialized at this point, but really understanding how to communicate either from like technical into the legal or vice versa. You're going to have to go back and explain to a data operations team the, the privacy impacts. And from my experience, these two worlds don't communicate the same. And so definitely, I think it is somebody who's probably specializing more in the technology end, either security or data operations, and then learning about privacy and and some of those concepts, not having, I'm not sure they're going to need a deep, deep understanding on the privacy world, but definitely understanding the terminology. When you think about taking it outside of those two teams and you have to message up, I think it's, again, really understanding the impact to the business that you're trying to message. And so you can't just say, oh, there's a vulnerability on the S3 bucket 
and therefore a certain set of data is at risk, you're going to have to translate that into, oh, because we see a certain data set impacted, we're going to make a business decision to spend, you know, spend time and money fixing this vulnerability. And so you have to to kind of flip it. You can't just use the privacy words or the technology words. You do have to translate into the business speak. Sure. If you want buy-in, that's uh, that's absolutely key. Yeah, Uh, that's key. So looking a little more broadly, given you guys have a diverse set of roles, like you said, both handling payments as well as you know people's PII and things like that. I imagine you have other folks who aren't necessarily technical. In your guys' case, what are you guys doing to educate and train employees, you know, overall, the broader sense, not just your security team, but on things like best practices for cybersecurity? And then what kind of things are you guys doing to measure that success of those programs? Yeah, that's a really hard question. <laughs> I'm not sure there's a silver bullet on this one. You know, internally at Guild, because we are really, really big on education, I might have an easier path than a lot of people. So for me to reach out and into a Slack channel, we have certain channels where we can post different education opportunities or highlight fun webinars coming up. And so I think I have an opportunity to kind of piggyback on the the culture that we have where people are truly interested in learning new things. I don't find it to be difficult to post new fun things either coming up in the cyber industry or privacy and just say, hey, engineering team, this is pretty cool. We were just talking about dark patterns and privacy the other day. And so post things like webinars or books to highlight. People actually really like reading the books and then having discussions about them. One of the other things that we've done is started doing book clubs. So my team will, right now we're hosting one for hacking APIs. And so we'll, I offer to buy the book for people and then they come to a book club with somebody on my team. And then we do like a leadership thought day where we'll bring in leaders from the industry and come and talk about whatever that topic is. And we don't assume that only people in like an engineering or technology role are interested. And so we do open this up to a broader community especially because people are, there are a lot of people who are interested in getting into security. They don't know where to start. And so hosting these types of things makes it a little bit friendly for them to like come and check it out and see what it's about, read a book and collaborate with their teams. The other thing that I did in the past year was actually do like a learning program for people wanting to learn Python. And so we opened it up to anybody at Guild who wasn't technical and was interested in a career that might include Python, which is just so many ranging from my team to the FinOps, engineering, data ops. So just a broad spectrum of careers open up to you. What we did was we then also, we highlighted different programs that they could take, some for free in Python. Then we paired people up with a mentor. And then we ended up doing like a six-week course where we paid somebody internally to teach a six-week course on Python internally where they could collaborate and work in small groups, things like that. So I think it's being open to doing things that aren't just sending out a PowerPoint or or like a standard security training that you might get and sort of thinking outside the box and inviting people to learn more, especially as it like might apply to their career path or or their home life. Mm-hmm. So sounds like a good way to scalp people from other teams and come work on your security team after <laughs> teaching them the required uh, programming language. I, if there uh-huh. is, yes, that always working on that pipeline. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, nothing wrong with that. So you used a term just a few minutes ago that I can't say that I'm super familiar with, and I'm hoping you might be able to tell me more about it. But you said dark patterns, dark patterns and privacy data. Can you tell me what is that? 
Yeah, actually, we're just digging into what this might look like. But the premise is that like engineering or your software engineers, as they're building out applications, they are making it difficult, maybe not intentionally. Uh, they're probably going for a better user experience in many times, but they're making it hard for people to really understand the impact to their privacy and the use of their data as they're building things out. And so you're starting to see some of this show up. There's a real concern that as we see more laws come out in the United States, each each state starts deciding to create their own laws, that your software that you're building isn't going to help people understand the privacy impact or the choices that they're making, or even as a consumer, what you're doing. And so if you're creating practices where like you're putting security or privacy policies in ways that are hard to get to, or they're great, like if you have a screen and it's like a white background and you're making it light gray, so it's actually hard to find or read, that could be another one. And so there's just a real interest in understanding. It's sort of like security by design. So you're designing security into the practice of software development. It's also thinking about privacy and the implications to privacy as you're building out your software. And so it's sort of the deeper the things like early on, maybe in a life cycle as you're building product or as you're making decisions about user experience, how are they impacting privacy rights? Interesting. So it's along the lines of a transparency effort, if I'm following along. Yeah, it can't. Well, and it's more of a recognition of your practice. If you're developing software and you're only focused on user experience and you're not really thinking about these other aspects like of a, of a user experience, which includes understanding how your, your data is being collected and used. And so transparency within the life cycle and making sure that your software engineers actually understand that some of the decisions they make can lead to somebody not truly understanding what's happening with their data or how it's being collected. I see. Okay. Well, thank you for that. So What do you believe is going to be the biggest security challenges facing the education industry? And what are you guys doing to uh, prepare for them? Oh, for the education industry, I think the biggest challenge for the education industry is that there's been a severe lack of funding for so many years. A lot of universities or academic partners just really don't have the funding for some basic security. And so I think that is a big problem that they're going to continue to face until there's really, I think it's going to take the feds getting involved and saying like, you have to do this and you need to put funding towards it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because until that happens, I think they just will continue to fall off and not be the the thing that's most important to many of the academic partners. I do think there's probably a federal oversight coming in the near future. And and I think they're going to have, I think their biggest problem is going to be catching up uh, from what we're seeing. Sure. No, I, I would agree with you. I came out of higher ed, previously worked at Indiana University, and uh, definitely saw a shift when things became like uh, the big business of education, if you will, as opposed to the you know academic knowledge exchange. It, it really like the business of education started to become more obvious as the longer I worked there. Yeah. So zooming out for your organization, what do you see your role in helping kind of move them forward? I think our role is to support them the best that we can. We're kind of in an interesting middle part of the the transactions. Everything's happening is that like with our employer partners, our customers, we're seeing modern technology. And so they're asking for API integrations, they're asking for data exchanges that are, are pretty modern. As we move to the schools or the universities and academic partners, their ability to collect and manage their data is hard. Like it, we've, we're talking about like networks that are probably pretty segmented or systems that aren't talking to each other. In many cases, we find that 
And so one of the things we're doing is, is trying to help them get better handle of the data that they have and how they're collecting it and, and sort of data quality that we're getting from them. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have. Um, we'll continue to support them on it. But I think it's going to go back to funding. Again, if your systems aren't talking to each other and they're 15 years old or older or you homegrown, they may never talk to each other. And that API is probably not going to happen anytime soon. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, you had mentioned federal oversight and things coming. Sadly, a lot of that stuff doesn't come until it's because it was deemed too late. Uh, You know, there's some type of event. And that second piece that you're describing is often like antiquated systems that everybody's relying on. Lo and behold, when they go down, suddenly uh, people have the same outcome. So I could see, you know, a future where there are limitations on how long systems can be up and running like that when they're in those key places uh, in particular. Uh, Yeah. Uh, that would be an interesting move. I... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we do um, we do a lot of threat research at Team Cymru. And uh, once upon a time, we did a longevity of a malicious, like how long does an infection last online? Uh, yeah. And we were doing it largely oriented off of IP data. But we were able to see that there was like compromised systems usually get fixed in about, it was at the time, it was something like 200 something days. Or never, or when the fan dies, you know, something like that, where it went out to like four digit numbers. It was very interesting, like a a steady decline to be just a little bit over a year, I think it was, and then a flat line out until, and we eventually, we figured it out that it was like hard drives and fans die at about that time. And so it was like mechanical attrition that was making these infections go away. That, and, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. <laughs> I know it's it's kind of scary. But like you said, you know, there's whole systems that are holding people's PII. They're holding, in some cases, their entire academic record. And it's, you know, an antiquated system that people are, are leaning on. Anyway, I, that's uh, me being the, the systems nerd. So let me ask you, five years from now, what do you think cyber risk management will look like? Oh, I actually think it's going to grow. I think this part of the industry is going to have to grow. I think similar to how we saw SOX, SOX play out and how you see the elevation of the risk management on the financial side, I think there's going to be some sort of reckoning for the cyber industry. And I think we'll see something similar happen where, again, I think there will be some oversight that's probably sent out to or like overlaid on like most technology in the United States. And then I think with that, we are going to have to see a change, a shift from somebody who's just in technology to the business person who's translating the risk from your cyber or privacy programs back to the business. And at the board, I mean, we're already seeing the boards having to bring somebody on for a cyber level. And so if you're having somebody on the board who can speak to cyber, you're going to have to have somebody inside who can report out to that person. I do think it's going to be a cyber risk person. I do have some concern that, and I believe your podcast has probably tried to help this, that there aren't enough of us out there who can translate that or when it's translated, it's not being translated in a way that's understandable. And so you do see a lot of security professionals struggle with that. And so I think there's going to have to be training, soft skills training, or an actual person who emerges as like, the translator between security and the board. Sure. No, I totally agree. And I think, you know, that what's called communication gap, I think it works in both directions as well. I've met with, you know, plenty of thought leaders, lots of of business decision makers, and I find sometimes that they use language also that is unique to their 
aspect, their piece of the suite, right, where they have, no, let's just use accounting. There are accounting terms that your security team are not going to understand that. And there are obvious business components, like, for example, what type of whether you're going to be a cash flow business or not. Well, go and ask your your security officer which they think they're probably not going to have much of an answer either. Uh, So that kind of like maybe what we need, the world needs is a Rosetta Stone of sorts, some type (laughs) of uh, translator so that everybody can start to perceive that shared risk, because whether people like it or not, risk is shared across all of it. If one any one of those pieces makes a mistake, if you built your business on net 60s, but you have a 30 day pay runway, what are you going to do for that delta? What happens if you owe money, but don't aren't taking in money uh, in that time? And that's a risk to the business, right? The risk the business could go out of business. And I think that uh, I totally agree with you. We're going to need more of this translation, I guess, to make sure people really get it. Yeah. And one piece of advice I would say, or I tell everybody, I tell my own team this, if you don't understand how your business is making money, then you aren't doing your job, right? I mean, you need to understand where the money comes from. And so that like, you can't just protect technology for the sake of protecting technology. There's definitely a deeper understanding of understanding what's important to the business and where that money's like either flowing and or just what's most important. And so I think that's where like even my team, I have to constantly remind them, like, I need you to understand how the business makes money. I want you to understand why it's important that they made this specific goal for themselves this year. Because if all you're doing is focusing on the technology, you're kind of, you're going to be blindsided by the thing that comes out of nowhere because you didn't perceive it as an emerging risk for the business. And so really just, and I know a lot of technologists don't like this, but really trying to work on attending some of those meetings that may seem boring to you, talking about the business or the updates or your the company goals, they're so important to understand why decisions are being made because they are going to impact you at some point. And it's better to understand where they're coming from than to just have it come out of left field. Yeah, completely agreed. You know, we make a number of products and like you described, you know, how do we make money is something that I also work in to get my staff to be thinking about and not just memorize our products. I mean, oh, no, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like what really, how do we make money? Where does the product exchange with the money happen? Is it, you know, what's the real value? What are we doing for the world? Uh, Why this stuff matters? Total couldn't agree with you more. It's a huge, you know, leveler. So that's one piece of advice there. What give me two more. Have any other uh, bits of wisdom for, let's say, a future self? Oh, definitely. So it's one thing that I do. Another thing I talk to my teams about is, my advice is go out on LinkedIn and find the next job you want. And openly, I will openly discuss it with them and then look at the skill gaps. So understand where your skills are and then understand the skills that that job's asking for. And then looking like, how do I get to that next level? How do I understand what's missing? And I think it's being able to really understand what that future job is asking you to do is sometimes hard to translate if you're just focused on your day-to-day or not really understanding how you get from A to B. And so that's another thing I would tell your future, like tell yourself now, if you want your future self to be somewhere, you need to understand where that is and your path needs to be heading that direction or you're you're just not going to be there. The other piece of advice I would give, I think because we've talked a lot about this, is reading some of those business books. There's a lot of books out there that help CISOs or security leaders try and understand the business. So I think picking those up, if you hear the business talking about a particular business book, that they're all reading, 
like ours right now, everybody's reading smart brevity. So uh, if, if they're saying that, you read that too, even though it should, probably doesn't, you're like, why would I have to read something about communicating? You need to read it to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And so I think being open to understanding more about the business itself and not just taking the technology courses, which are important, but I think those business books will really help you get to that next level. Yeah. Interesting. I definitely agree. I've uh, forced myself to read a number of those business books uh, as well. If nothing else, just so I understood what they were talking about. Um, yeah. You know, because they come and they, they like security is a piece of most processes these days. But if when it comes to, for your turn to say something, if you didn't understand what everybody in the room said, you know, you're not going to be, be able to help them. Anyway, so Julie, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. That's about all the time that we have. But if any of our listeners wanted to follow up with you or, you know, see what kind of things you're working on, uh, do you have social media? Do you have, you know, ways for people to, to stay in touch with you? Um, yeah, the best way is on LinkedIn. So you can like Julie Chikillo, uh, I'm the one that guilds. So uh, happy, uh, feel free to reach out and um, I'll either connect or you can see what we're posting about. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Julie. I hope you have a good week and let's stay in touch. Thank you. It was great talking to you today. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.